Thank you for downloading or streaming this message from Emmanuel Church. We are one church with multiple locations, and we believe God wants to bless you right where you are. In a few moments, you're going to hear some practical teaching from God's Word that I believe will be inspiring and relevant to your life. First, though, if you haven't yet experienced Emmanuel Live, we encourage you to go to our website, eclife.org, to check out our service times and locations so that you can experience Emmanuel in person or through our online campus. If this message blesses you and you'd like to support the ministry financially, again, you can go to eclife.org and click on the Giving tab and choose Online Campus at your campus. Thanks again for joining us today, and we hope this message will be an encouragement to you on your spiritual journey. Well, good morning, Emmanuel Church. How are you feeling today? It is truly a joy to be here with you. Before we dive in, I just want to say welcome to all of our very first-time guests, whether you're joining us at Banta, Franklin, Garfield Park, or online somewhere across the country, or even across the world, or if you're first time here at Greenwood, can we give them a very special welcome? Thank you for tuning in. I want to encourage you, if you're brand new, to text the word NEW to 65248. We'd love to put a gift in your hands. And if you're not brand new, you're coming back. Hey, welcome back. Good to see you. Um, we are starting a brand new series today called Thrive. Always get pretty excited about a new series, new content, kind of get fired up about that. And I want to begin, I want to jump in really uh, quickly today because I've got a lot of ground to cover in this, uh, in this first segment of this series. And I want, if you have, so if you're a note taker, grab your pen, grab your notes there if you're, if you're taking notes on the app. And I want you to make this, the, uh, do this first fill in real quick with me. Ready? Here we go. God made you to, say with me, to Thrive. Let's do that one more time. God made you to thrive, not just to survive, not just to make it and grind through your days, barely making it, barely keeping your head above water, but he made you to thrive. What does it mean to thrive? I want to give us a definition for this series so we know what we're dealing with here. In your notes, I wrote it like this. Thrive means to flourish or prosper or to grow vigorously. Now, if you've been raising children, if you are raising children, if you've got grandchildren, if you're raising grandchildren, you understand what the word thrive means because kids grow so fast. They grow physically. They grow emotionally. Uh, their, their vocabulary is exploding uh, at certain times uh, as they're in middle school and, and intermediate school. Kids are just thriving. It's so, uh, when we were raising our, our three kids, and we still are. Um, but uh, I remember when my oldest was about 15, 16 years old, around that range, he was just growing like a weed. You know, it's like he went to 5'8", to 5'9", five, 5'11", five, then he got to 6 feet, then he got to 6'1", then he got to 6'3", and we were looking eyeball to eyeball, and then he jumped to 6'4", and I was looking up at him, and I'm like, what is happening? You know, I'm no longer the alpha male in my house, you know, and so, of course, I could still fold him up like a folding chair. But, but that's just my strength. <laughs> but he's taller than me. Then, 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 then my second son, he grew to six feet, six two, six three, and he went to six five, and he's actually taller than my oldest. And he reminds me about every day that he's the tallest male in the, in the, in the, in the house now, but I could still fold him up as well. Yeah, but anyway, it's just amazing to see your kids. They, they, just, they grow and they, they thrive. What does it mean to thrive? It means to grow vigorously, quickly, explosive growth. That's why God put you on this planet. He put you on this planet to thrive. Here's how Jesus explained it. In John chapter 10, verse 10, he said this, the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. We're gonna come back to that. He's talking about Satan. He's talking about the devil. But my purpose is to give them a, say it with me, a rich and satisfying life. 
Why does Jesus say that? What does it mean? Well, another version of this uh, particular passage says that I came to give you life and to give it to you abundantly or to give you abundant life. What does that word mean? It means excessive life. It means more than you need. It mean, it's like a cup that's overflowing. I have got, come to give you an overflowing life, a rich and satisfying life. Have you ever thought about that before? What did Jesus mean when he said this? He wants to fill up your cup. He wants you to thrive on this earth. That's his purpose for your life. In this series, what we're gonna learn is that this type of thriving only comes when you're connected to God in a relationship. Okay, that's very, very important. In fact, I wrote it in your notes like this. Thriving, or the way we're gonna describe it, is the result of living in a relationship with God. Now, there are other types of thriving, and you might be thinking, now, wait a second, uh, lots of people thrive outside of a relationship with God. If, if you're thinking about thriving in this sense, that they've got money and cars and houses and health, and they're able to go on vacations, and wait a second, you don't have to be in relationship with God in order to thrive. Well, I'm not going to be talking about that type of thriving. I'm talking about a different type of thriving. Uh, the type of thriving that, is, that comes from being connected to and in relationship with God. It's the life that you were put on this earth to live. Let's talk about that thriving. What does it look like to have this, this type of abundant life or rich and satisfying life? Jesus also called it eternal life. I want to paint a picture for you in this series because we need to know what we're shooting at. What is the target? couple of thoughts for you. A person who's thriving is living a life filled with this thing called joy. Now, joy is similar to happiness, but it's also different. I believe that happiness is connected to circumstances. Things go your way. You get the job. You know, you, you get the raise. You get into college that you want to. Uh, you know, you close on the loan and you get the house and you're happy. Things happen. That's where happiness comes from. I believe joy cuts deeper and goes deeper. I believe joy, according to Dallas Willard, is a pervasive sense of well-being on the inside at the soul level that's not rooted in your circumstances, but rather in the goodness of God. That is joy. Joy Joy, that means that you can experience this, this feeling, I believe it is a feeling, I also believe it's a state of being, that even when your circumstances are negative. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 15 after he got done talking about how he's the vine and we're the branches and if we stay connected to him, we'll bear much fruit. Listen to what he says in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy, Jesus says, I'm gonna take the joy that's in my being and I'm gonna put it in you, so that your joy may be, and there's this word again, full, overflowing, abundance, excessiveness. Whose joy does God want to put inside of us? His own. Jesus says, I'm going to take my joy and put it in you. And it's not connected to circumstances. It's a pervasive sense of well-being rooted in my spirit, rooted in my goodness. You want to know what a, a, a thriving life looks like? It looks like a life that is filled with joy. What else? There's this thing called peace. A person who's thriving has a life that is filled with peace. Jesus said this in John chapter 14, verse 27. I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. Oh, wouldn't you want some of that? Isn't that something that we, would, we all desire today? Peace of mind and heart. And the peace that I give you is a gift that the world cannot give you. So don't be troubled or afraid. See, there is a peace that this world offers us. It, there is. You on vacation, you're sitting on the beach, there's no problems, sipping on a drink, right? 
nice warm breeze, sunshine, a little tan on your skin. You get, we get little segments of peace in this world, right? No children around, right? Your kids graduate from college, right? Uh, you know, there's, there, there are little, little tastes of peace in this world. You take the Financial Peace University class and you, you save three to six months expenses. You got $1,000 in emergency fund, you know, paying off your credit card debt. You get some financial peace. Jesus says, I am not going to offer you peace like that. I'm going to offer you a peace that this world cannot give you. It's a different type of peace. It's a peace that can, that can fill your heart such that you are not afraid or troubled. Could we use some of that in our world today? Everybody's freaking out, right? But fear and danger and all kinds of problems in the world. What is peace? Think about it with me like this. Peace is rest of soul rooted in the sovereignty of God. Like, I know God's got this. I know that God's in control, so I'm not going to freak out. This is the way Paul wrote it in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. He says, hey, don't be anxious about anything. Instead, let, every, let all your requests be made known unto God. And then when you pray with thanksgiving, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? He's saying, when you trust God, peace will flood your life. This is what it looks like to thrive, and you can have it in the midst of difficulty. You can have peace in the midst of pain. What else does it look like? It looks like a life of love, where you're able to love the unlovable. Wouldn't that be power? Wouldn't that be something if we had that today, the strength to love the unlovable, those who disagree with us politically, those who want us to wear a mask, those those who want us to get vaccinated, those who think we shouldn't get vaccinated, all these different opinions out there. And everybody's mad at each other. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could love each other? Wouldn't it be awesome if we could show each other grace? Right? That, a, a person who's thriving is able to do that and, and understand and empathize and love. What else does it look like? It looks like a life of strength to resist and overcome temptation. There's so much temptation in the world out, 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 out there today whether it's sexual temptation or temptation to, to abuse alcohol or, or drugs or, or steal. Or, or, and and when, you're living, when you're thriving, you have the power and the wisdom to look at temptation and say, that'll ruin me. I'm going to go left. I'm, I'm, I'm going to avoid that. I'm going to go around that. That's what it looks like to thrive. What else does it look like? It's a life of faith, this deep confidence in God that, that, that allows you to stand firm in the midst of trials and difficulty. This is what it looks like to thrive. What else? It's, it's a life filled with grace. What do I mean by that? Grace. It means that you're able to view yourself as God views you. See, God sees you if you're a person of faith today. He sees you as his child. He sees you as one who is imperfect yet forgiven. And so you begin to view yourself in that light. And so you begin to become comfortable in your own skin, even though you're still a sinner. You give yourself grace. The self-hatred and the self-loathing flees away because you understand that every single day you're walking in grace and you're walking in the acceptance of Jesus Christ, even though you blow it repeatedly. And so because you've received grace from God and you're, you're comfortable in your own skin, you can give grace to others and so you're easy to be around. You're not judgmental. You're not getting on Facebook or Twitter and blasting people for how bad they are or whatever. You're, you're, you're a very gracious person towards yourself and towards others. This is what it looks like to thrive. What else does it look like? It looks like you, you're, you have a life filled with purpose and meaning, like you understand your life is designed to impact others in this world. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, powerful verse. For we are God's masterpiece. Every single human being is God's work of art. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. Did you know that God planned 
good works for you to step into and perform to make a difference in this world. That's why we would do something like Impact Week or get you on the Impact Team or, or take mission trips to Haiti or Colombia or this, because we were created in Christ Jesus to make a difference in this world. And when you're thriving, you wake up every day and you know your life has purpose and you know it has meaning. And so it's very exciting to get up in the morning. This is what it looks like to thrive. And there's more to it than that, but I've tried to paint a small picture for you so that you know where we're trying to go in this series. Where's, what's the target? Here's where my heart breaks as a pastor and as I look at our world today and as I look at our community and our church, there's not that many people who are experiencing joy and peace and purpose and strength to overcome temptation. They're living in victory above sin. There's, there's, you know, they're, they're overcoming anxiety and depression. There's not that many people. There's some. But there's no epidemic of thriving. Would you agree? I see fear. I see anger. I see hatred. I see racism. I see uh, jealousy. I, I see all of these things everywhere. Sexual immorality rampant. It's like, oh my gosh, how come more people are not thriving? God put people on the earth to thrive. What's the problem? What's the issue? When your notes, I wrote it like this. Your thriving is opposed. See, the answer to the question of why more people aren't thriving is it's your thriving is opposed. You actually have an enemy that's fighting against or trying to block you from experiencing a rich and satisfying life. Years ago when I read Mere Christianity, which happens to be my favorite spiritual book by C.S. Lewis, he wrote these amazing words and they shaped my understanding and matched up with the New Testament. And he said this, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who, held, who was held to be the power behind death, disease, and sin. And then he says this about the earth, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. When you wake up in the morning, you're stepping into enemy-occupied territory. You have an adversary who's set against you. Jesus said he's a thief, and he's come to steal, kill, and destroy. Steal your joy. Rob you of peace. Ruin your reputation. Take away your physical health. Destroy your marriage. Destroy your health. He's come to steal, kill, and destroy. And that is what we wake up to every single day. No wonder Peter wrote these powerful words in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Stay alert. Be on your toes, be on your guard, be sober-minded. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. Look, he prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to, say it with me, devour. You know, some people who, who, who don't have faith and you know, don't believe in God, maybe they're atheists, they make jokes about the devil. They make jokes, maybe you've heard, maybe you have friends who do this. They make jokes about going to hell. It's like, yeah, I'm one of those people that... Uh, I'm never going to make it. If there is a God, I'll, I won't make it. I'm, I'm going to be down in hell doing shots with the demons, with the devil. We're going to be hanging out. It's going to be a party. And I'm like, oh, don't say that. Don't say that. Because there's no party in hell. No one's doing shots with the devil. Trust me. The devil is not interested in partying with you. He's interested in one thing devouring your life, tearing you apart, separating you from God. That's his whole plan. When you wake up in the morning, you're stepping into a world. Enemy-occupied territory is what C.S. Lewis wrote. And so we're supposed to watch out and stay alert because he wants to block you from thriving. And so therefore, Paul writes these powerful words in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. He says, put on all of God's armor. He says, basically, your life is warfare. 
When you wake up in the morning, you have to prepare like a soldier. You gotta have a, breast, a, breastplate, a breastplate of righteousness, a shield of faith, a helmet of salvation, the shoes that are ready to share the gospel of peace. Paul talks about the armor, he calls it, and then he, he, he says you need the, the, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Put on the whole armor of God so that you'll be able to stand against the, say it with me, the strategies of the devil. Did you know that the devil has a strategy to take your life out? To ruin your reputation? To ruin your character? Did you know that? Like He has a plan with his demons to take you out. It's a specific plan designed around your weaknesses to block you from thriving. This is the world we live in. You say, man, this is not a very encouraging sermon. (laughs) I'm not trying to encourage you right now. I'm trying to warn you. Stop waking up as if the devil doesn't exist, as if your life is not opposed, and if things are just supposed to go well. It's not, that's not reality. Reality is that we live in enemy-occupied territory, and the devil's got a strategy to take you out. What is his strategy? It's, it's not a complicated one. It really isn't. Uh, it's the same one he used in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Anybody know what it is? Yeah, he lies. That's it. It's a simple strategy. Satan lies to you. He's not going to throw fire down or, you know, try to, you know, do some crazy stuff to take you out. He just lies. He may do that stuff. He did it to Job. But most, most likely he's going to lie to you. Jesus said this about Satan in John chapter 8, verse 44. Satan is a liar. And not only is he a liar, but he's the father of lies. He's the originator. He gave birth to the first lie. He's the author of lies. In other, in, other, in other words, when a person is lying or exaggerating or shading the truth, they're acting just like who? The devil. Wow, that's powerful. This is what he did to Eve in the garden. You remember the conversation in the garden if, you, if you've read Genesis? It's a pretty simple conversation, Genesis chapter three. God says, hey, Adam and Eve, come here. You guys are great, you're awesome. A little bit of my translation here. You got the whole garden here. Look, lots of trees, lots of fruit. You can eat from whatever you want. Have at it. Go for it. It's all yours. I put you in charge of it. See that one tree over there? Don't touch it. Don't eat the fruit from that tree because if you eat the fruit from that tree, you'll die. Okay, got the orders. No problem. Satan slithers into the Garden of Eden, starts a conversation with Eve. He says, hey, Eve, did God say if you eat from that tree, you'll die? Eve says, absolutely, that's what God said. He said, if we eat from that tree, we'll we'll die, and even if we touch it, we'll die, which he didn't say. He just said, if you eat it, you'll die, but anyway. Listen to Satan's response to Eve in verse four of chapter three. You won't die. Now, did God tell Eve that she would die if she ate the fruit, yes or no? Did he say that? And Satan comes right behind his statement and says, nope, not true. You won't die. See, Satan's a liar, and he tricked Eve. We're gonna talk a little bit more about that in a second. You wanna know what this series is really about? It's a simple series. I wanna talk about some common lies that Satan tells you, Satan tells me, to block us from thriving. And then I want to fight those lies with the only way we can, which is with truth. The truth of God's word. Jesus said the truth will set you from what? Free from what? The bondage and the trap of the enemy. So we have to fight the devil's lies with the truth of God's word. So let's dive into this first lie. It's a powerful lie, and it's so destructive if we believe it and buy into it. The first lie I want to talk about that Satan throws at us to block us from thriving is very simple. Here it is in your notes. You can't trust God. You just can't trust him. I mean, he's not trustworthy, uh, and, and, uh, and so throw in the towel and give up on the, the, the whole deal. 
Now, the reason why this, this lie is so easy to believe is because life is hard. Life is tough. I mean, I know two families right now that have little babies uh, in the ICU, just, just, just in our church, like when we're praying that they pull through and complications, accident. I mean, life is tough. Imagine having a t- you know, tiny little, just give birth to a tiny little baby and the, the lungs aren't, you know, and, and it's just, oh man, so hard, so hard. Every, everywhere you turn, life is hard. Someone dies, some, you know, the whole thing in Afghanistan, there's an earthquake in Haiti, there's a flood in New York. I mean, every time we look, if, if you don't have a personal problem, there's like 17 other problems going on in the world that are extremely painful to watch and listen. Am I, am I the only one? I mean, I don't even watch the news and I'm aware of, of most, of the stu- most of this stuff. It's like, man, life is hard. It's so, it's so difficult. And, and one of the hardest thing for, things for people of faith to do, and, and I know not everyone is a person of faith, and our hope is that you become a person of faith, but uh, one of the hardest things for people of faith to do is to bump up against pain and still believe. It's, it's tough. It's tough. And I think the reason why it's so tough, hang with me here, and, and, and I'm not necessarily talking about everybody, but I think a lot of people of faith do this. I think what we do is subconsciously, we make a deal with God when we put our faith in Jesus and start coming to church and join a small group and join the impact team and start giving money and all this stuff. And the subconscious deal that we make is, look, hey, God, I'm going to do this, like Pastor Danny said this or whatever. I, I'm supposed to you know, attend services and take notes and pray and read, read the Bible. And I'm going to do my part, but then on the back end, I I expect you to do your part, which is to protect me from pain. Okay? We got it? We good? Like, not, like I'm going to go to church on Sunday. I'm going to get dressed and the whole thing. Maybe watch online. <laughs> and, and then I'm going to be a good little boy or girl. And then you protect me from pain. And maybe you've never verbalized it like that before, but there's a subconscious deal that we make with God. Like, I'll be a good boy or girl if you take care of me. And then guess what? He doesn't and we pray for our aunt and she dies. And our baby ends up in the hospital. Our husband cheats on us. Coworkers betray us. The friendship dissolves. The landlord decides to sell the house and we gotta move out. Whatever. You got your pain, I got my pain. Right? We have the estranged person, the person who doesn't talk to their parents because they feel hurt. Whatever the pain is. And then... In this moment of pain where we, we, we kind of feel betrayed. It's like, I've been going to church. I, I've been doing the deal. I've been reading the Bible. And now this? And then in that moment of vulnerability, and that's what pain does for people of faith. Pain makes us vulnerable. The devil slips right in, just like he did in the garden. He slips right in in that moment of vulnerability, and he whispers in our ear and says, see, really what's going on is that God left you hanging out to dry, you can't trust him. See, if God was real, if God loved you, he wouldn't have let that happen to you. Translation, you can't trust him. This is what was going on in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter three, verse four, Satan says to, to, to Eve, God, God won't die, he, he won't kill you, you won't die. Look what he says in verse five, watch this, Genesis chapter three, verse five. God just knows that your eyes will be opened, Eve, come on, come on, come on. As soon as you eat the fruit, you're going to become just like God, 
knowing good from evil. What is Satan really saying here to Eve? You know what he's saying? God is holding out on you. There's this whole set side of knowledge and wisdom and God-likeness that he's, he's, holding, he's holding back from you. And if you just eat the fruit, then you can get that and, and you can become like God. In other words, Eve made this decision to eat the fruit because she felt like she could not trust God. And, he, and Satan comes at us in the same way and says, I know that God says you shouldn't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, but, but you know, you can't trust him to provide a spouse for you. Just go ahead and date this other guy over here because he's cute and he's got a nice car. And we date him. Wait a minute. And then, and then you know, the devil comes in and says, I know that sex is for married people, but gosh, that's so archaic. And you deserve some pleasure. And you guys love each other. I know you're not married. God is holding out on you. And so we, we you know, we just, we just have sex with, with, with whoever, whenever, however, whenever. People of faith. I'm talking about people of faith. We can't trust God to hold on to virginity until marriage. Are you kidding me? Then, God, then, then, then the pastor says, hey, you need to be generous with your money. You need to give 10% back to the church. And you're like, what? I give 10% back to the church. How am I supposed to live on 90 after taxes and all that stuff? I can't, I can't trust God. I'm not giving anything. I've been through all of these, all of these. And I'd love to tell you the story about how Jackie and I waited to our wedding night, which is a crazy story. It was a miracle in and of itself. Because we decided, we decided when we were dating, it's real simple. What does God say about sex? He says it's for husbands and wives. And we were not husband and wife. And so we made a decision to wait until our wedding night to have sex. And that was awesome. And it was worth the wait. <laughs> but that's just because we, that's just because we, we decided to say, I, I, I trust you. I, 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 I believe you. But the, the devil comes in today and he, he whispers in our ears, says, no, take matters into your own hands. You, you can't trust God. Listen, when we buy into this lie, when we, when we believe it, because pain makes us vulnerable, here's what happens. We drift away from the very source of life. We drift away from the one person who would, who would bring us a rich and satisfying life, eternal life, abundant life. We feel like we've been that roommate or that friend that's been betrayed or double-crossed because pain has touched our lives. How do we fight this? Well, the way that we fight off this lie is with truth, as I've already mentioned. So let's talk about it. The truth that we're going to use to fight off this lie, and it's a real simple one, is that God is in control and he has a plan. He's in control and he has a plan. Behind your finances, behind your sexual, sexual life, your relationship, your relational life, God is in control and he has a plan. Now, this truth is all over the Bible, but I want to share with you what I think is the, 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 one of the best stories where this, this truth comes out. And it's the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 39 and, and on. And it, it, Joseph, if you don't know the story, I'll, I'll, I'll tell it really quick. It's kind of long, but it's so good. It's so good. Joseph's got 11 brothers. He's, he's, uh, he's uh, the favorite son of, 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 uh, of Jacob in the Bible. And, um, and he has these two dreams. And in the dreams, his 11 brothers are bowing down to him and his mom and his dad and he's a young kid and he doesn't know enough to keep this to himself so he blabs it to his brothers who are all older than him and and they're like dude we hate you 
Okay, so early on, Joseph is hated by his brothers. Then his dad shows him favoritism and makes him this special coat. And then his brothers are even more jealous and they hate him even more. One day they come up with this grand idea to kill him because that's what you do when you hate your brother. Uh, so they take him out, they're gonna kill him. And one of his brothers is like, no, maybe we shouldn't kill him. Let's just you know, sell, him to, sell him into slavery. So Joseph gets sold into slavery by his brothers at the age of 17. And, and so this is not a good life. I mean, from, from the time he's born, into his teenage years, he's just not having fun, okay? So, but things kind of make a turn. They take a turn for the better for him for a while because God is with him. And when he gets sold into slavery, he gets sold into this guy named Potiphar's house who's like a really high-ranking official in Pharaoh's uh, administration. And God is with Joseph. And so he gives him favor with Potiphar and Potiphar puts him in charge of his entire house, like as, as like the main guy. And, and, uh, and everything's going great. It seems to be going awesome. But then, you know, Potiphar's wife... Look, thinks Joseph's cute, and so she pursues him sexually, and, and he's like, no, 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 I can't do that. Well, then she tries to grab a hold of him. If you know the story, he runs away, and she falsely accuses him of rape, and he gets falsely accused. Well, of course, Potiphar sides with his wife, and they throw Joseph into jail. So this is not a good life so far. I mean, his brothers hate him. He gets left for dead. Now he's falsely accused of rape, gets thrown into jail. But then, because God is with him, like, things start to look up because, you know, uh, he's smart, he's intelligent. And so the, the warden in the jail actually uh, shows Joseph favor and elevates him to, to basically be the, the, the boss in jail. And so things are going well again. And, and, and then there's these two guys show up, a baker and a cupbearer, the king, Pharaoh's baker and Pharaoh's cupbearer. And they show up, and in jail, they have these two dreams. And, and Joseph has this amazing ability to interpret dreams. So he interprets the baker's dream, and then he interprets the cupbearer's dream. Well, the baker's dream uh, comes true and it doesn't work out too well for him. He loses his head. Do you know the story? Just, okay. He dies. Well, the cupbearer's dream was a great dream and it comes true and he gets released from prison and gets reinstated as Pharaoh's cupbearer. The one request Joseph had before the cupbearer left jail to be reinstated was, do not forget me, please. I'm here. I'm innocent. I'm falsely accused. I don't want to be in jail. Uh, well, the cupbearer forgets Joseph, and for two more whole years, he is in jail. It's not a good life, okay? But then things turn, uh, take a turn for, for the good for him, uh, because Pharaoh gets this dream. He actually gets two dreams, uh, the king of Egypt, and these dreams basically show that there are going to be seven years of plenty in all of the land, and then after that, seven years of famine. I know this is a long story, but it's really, really good. And so he doesn't, he doesn't know who could, no, there's no one there to interpret the dreams. So the cupbearer remembers Joseph in jail. He says, oh, when I was in jail, there was this guy. Okay, go get him. So they pull Joseph out of jail. He interprets the dreams. Pharaoh is super impressed. Not only does Joseph interpret the dreams, but he gives him this, basically this plan, this governmental plan to save up a bunch of grain during the first seven years of plenty so that everyone will be able to eat in the second year, uh, the second seven of famine. And Pharaoh's like, dude, you're awesome. So he promotes him to number two or second in command in all of Egypt. Great story. So now he's got all this favor. And sure enough, the seven years of plenty go by. And then the second set of seven years, which is the seven years of famines, begin in that second set. In the second year of the second set of seven, everyone runs out of food. Not only in Egypt, but also in all the surrounding areas where his brothers lived. So now his brothers need food. They heard that there was food in Egypt, so they come to Egypt. When they get to Egypt, they meet this man who's now 30 years old. You know what it was? It was their brother that they sold into slavery. They threw him in the pit 
and left for dead. Joseph doesn't want to reveal who he is, but finally, because he can't take it, he says, I'm your brother Joseph. And guess what they do? They bow down. Just like in Joseph's dreams. Because they think he is going to seek retribution. They think that he's going to get revenge. They think that he's going to lock him up and kill him. And so they bow down low. But Joseph doesn't do that. Instead, I want you to hear what he says in Genesis 50, verse 20. Maybe one of the greatest truths in the whole Bible. Joseph says, guys, come on, I'm not going to kill you. You intended to harm me. But God intended it all for good. Now think about that. Joseph is interpreting being thrown into a pit, left for, left for dead, hated by his brothers, false accusation of rape, left in jail. He, Joseph has enough insight to understand that all of those negative things, all those painful things that happened to me were part of God's plan. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. Come on, guys, I'm not gonna kill you. You intended to harm me. You thought this was gonna be something that would crush me. It wasn't. It was God's plan the whole time. Wow, what a powerful truth. Here's what I want you to hear today. God is in control, and he has a plan. You might think, well, that's fine for Joseph, but is that true for me, right? That's the question we're all here wondering. Is like, is that how God works in my life? Is there a plan for my life? Is he in control in my life? Well, <laughs> it depends. I wish I could just answer yes no matter what, but it depends. See, this truth is also found in the New Testament, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, but it gives us a caveat. It gives us a a, a clarifying point, and I want you to see it. This is very important because not everyone can claim this truth for their life, that, hey, all things work together, and and, and God's going to work it out in my life. It doesn't work that way for everyone. Listen to what Paul said. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good. There it is, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. But who does he do that for? For those who love God. For those who are called according to his purpose for them. We love to focus on this part of the verse. In fact, some people get it tattooed here or tattooed there and they'll claim it or whatever. But we don't focus on this part of the verse, which is extremely important. Because if you don't love God, if, if, if you don't put God first, if you haven't said, Jesus, I want to follow you, Jesus, you're my savior, then this truth does not apply to you. And your life is a random set of of events that are chaotic and totally out of control and not connected. But if you love God, and you, and by the way, nobody does that perfectly, if you love God in the sense that you're saying, Jesus, my life is in your hands, I want to honor you, I want to obey you, I want to please you to the best of my ability, when I wake up in the morning, I'm not going to seek my will, I'm going to seek your will, You're, you're the treasure of my life. If you love God, then you can claim this promise for your life, and you can know that all of the pain in your life is connected for a bigger purpose. If you don't love God, you cannot claim that purpose, and that's a scary place to be. I would never want to be that way. See, I'm able to interpret the pain in my life like Joseph did. Hey, it's tough. That's hard. That's painful. That hurts. But hey, wait a second. God is in control, and he has a plan. And here's what that does for me. Here's what that does for me as you apply theology to your life. Theology is so important. We're talking about the sovereignty of God. As you apply the sovereignty of God to your life and to the events of your life, here's what happens you're able to experience peace. What did we say peace was? It's part of the rich and and satisfying life that Jesus came to give us. Peace is rest of soul, rooted in the sovereignty of God. 
My soul can be at rest, even if, my, even if I'm in jail, even if my brothers hate me and they throw me into a pit, even if I'm falsely accused of rape, you know, no matter what's going on around me, my husband cheats on me, this happens, you know, I'm betrayed at the office or whatever. I can, have, I can have rest of soul because I believe in the sovereignty of God. Does that mean your pain goes away? No, no, you know, for two years, Joseph was in jail. No, it didn't go away, right? But he, in the midst of being falsely accused and left in jail, you can still have peace. You can still thrive. Here, here's the magnificent, this is why I'm, I love being a Christian, okay? You can have significant joy and peace in the midst of difficulty. You're not at the mercy of your circumstances because God is filling you with his joy and filling you with his peace. Jesus said, I have a gift for you, peace of mind and heart. Not as the world gives it, but I give it to you from my heart. Fear not and, don't, and do not be afraid. Wow. You can stay connected to the life of God and that is the secret to thriving. That is the secret to peace and joy and strength and grace and faith and the ability to resist temptation and overcome it. Now, I've done my best to, to, to show you the way. <laughs> you gotta take the ball and run with it. You gotta take this and you gotta apply it to your life and love God and trust in God. My question to you is this. This is the one I want you to wrestle with all week. It's a simple question. In the midst of your pain, will you trust him? Don't ask God to take the pain away. That's fine if you want to. But, you know, his, his, his major goal, the primary goal of God is not to keep you pain-free. That's not, that's, not, that's not his main objective. He wants you to trust him. Joseph was able to do it. And so he was able to maintain a thriving life in the midst of difficulty. Now the ball's in your court. Now you've heard it. What will you do with it? For me, I'll, I'm going to try my best to do this imperfectly. And I'm going to stumble over it and trip over it. But, but I know the direction of my life is, God, I love you. And as the pain touches my life, I'm going to trust you that you are taking these events and orchestrating them for some good. Wow. Do you feel the stabilizing effect of that in your life? And here's what happens. Your kids watch you, your spouse watches you, and you're not freaking out. And they're like, I don't get it. I don't get it. With the events that are touching your life, you should be freaking out, you should be depressed, popping Xanax, you should be doing all this stuff. Like, why are you at peace? Like, it's the peace that surpasses all their city. People don't understand it. And you become like a rock. You become a stabilizer in your home, at your office. It's like you bring security wherever you go. Why? Because you are thriving. You are thriving. You're not fragile. You're not hanging on by a thread. You bring strength to every situation you step into because you are connected to God. As we wrap up today and you walk away with this question in your life, I want to speak to those of you today who not yet stepped into relationship with God. This whole thriving thing, love and joy and peace and all this stuff, it can only happen in relationship with God. You can have riches and money and houses and fame and fortune, and, then, and in a sense, that's worldly thriving. If that's what you want, by all means, chase it. It's empty in the end. But if you want the thriving that we're talking about today, strength and faith and grace and purpose and meaning, love and joy, you have to be connected with God in relationship. This is what Jesus said, and I'll go back to it, in John 17, verse three. This is the way. Isn't that a cool line from The Mandalorian? 
those of you fans, this is the way. That's not, maybe they got it from this, I don't know. This is the way to have eternal life. Jesus made it clear, this is the way to know Jesus, to know God, to know the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the only true God, Jesus Christ, the one you've sent. Like, the way to have eternal life, an abundant life, a rich and satisfying life, is to know God, to be in relationship. Jesus has made it possible for you to do that. He died on the cross for your sin. He paid the penalty. He removed the barrier that separated you from God. He paid the penalty by dying on the cross. And then three days later, he rose again to wash away all your sin and all your shame. This is the way, Jesus said. One time he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Put your trust in me, Jesus said, and you'll find peace and joy. Will you trust him today? I'm gonna say a simple prayer. You can take these words and make them your own. Put your trust in Christ. Step into a relationship with God and begin to pursue him so that you can experience a rich and satisfying life. Take these words, make them your own. If you feel led to, dear Jesus, I believe you died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And I reach out to you in faith today. And I ask you to, to cleanse me, to wash me of all my sin, all my wrongdoing. Make me clean. Remove the guilt, wash away the shame as I trust you. I believe you came back to life three days later to make me a brand new person. So I put my confidence in you today. Be my father, be my, my savior. I receive you, your love, your grace, and your forgiveness. Make me your child. And from this day forward, teach me to pursue you, to love you, to obey you, to fight off the lies of the enemy and to believe the truth of your word, to trust you that you have a plan and that you're sovereign. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. If you just prayed that prayer, our church wants to rejoice with you, don't we? All of our campuses right now, Vanta, Franklin, Garfield Park, online, Greenwood here. If you trusted in Christ, hey, really quick, before you get out of here, we put, we put together a little starter kit. We call it our saved box. Inside this box, there's a Bible. There's some instructions on how to get connected to the church, baptism, small group, all that good stuff. There's also a coffee mug in here to say congratulations for trusting Christ. You can text the word SAVED to 65248. We'll put one of these in your hands at the information desk at your campus, or you can fill out some information online. We'll send one of these to the email. Can we give God glory one more time, church? Amen. I'm going to pray for us real quick and then hand things off to the local teams. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we can uh, read it and study it and understand the context of our days, that you've created us to thrive, but our thriving is opposed, and we have an enemy that's constantly trying to steal, kill, and destroy to wipe us out. Help us to fight off the lies of the enemy with the truth of your word. God, that you are in control and you have a plan and you can be trusted. We can trust your heart. We love you today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. See you next week. Bring a friend.